Today's bonus audio is a talk I gave last month at the SoCali Discipleship Rally here in San Diego. I shared on three foundations that will help you follow Jesus. Now, one reason I gave this talk is because I truly believe there's never been a better time to follow Jesus. We have unprecedented freedom and opportunity to live our lives as His people, especially for those of us living in the West. So what's holding us back? So many of us seem stuck in neutral where we're drifting through life rather than really living for Christ as His followers. I hope this audio encourages you to become that rare person who goes for it and follows Christ with everything you have. There's a story in the Gospels about a young man of wealth. And from everything we know about this, this man, he has, he has good character. He's conscientious. He thinks of life in moral terms, and he aspires to be a man of noble character. That's what he, that's what he wants. This man who had so much going for him came to Jesus and he asked him, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And then he and Jesus had a conversation about it. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about this conversation between this young, wealthy man and Jesus. At the end of the conversation, Jesus gave him the answer to his question. And he told him, look, you've made a lot of great choices, but there is still one thing you lack. Go and sell all your possessions Give it all away to the poor, and then come, follow me. So I want to ask a question tonight. What is the one thing that young man lacked? Now, a lot of us have trouble getting past Jesus' instructions to go and sell all of his possessions and to give it to the poor. And it's completely understandable why that may capture our attention. It's a pretty audacious challenge that Jesus gave this young man. But I want to suggest that that is not the one thing that he lacked. The one thing was not to go and sell and give away. The one thing was to come and follow. This man was not a follower of Jesus. With everything he had going for him, One thing that wasn't true of him was that he was not following Jesus. And it turns out that his great wealth was was the thing that was keeping him from coming and following Jesus. So tonight, I want to ask a question, which is, are you a follower of Jesus? Jesus doesn't care if you say that you believe in him. Jesus doesn't care if you call yourself a Christian. Jesus doesn't care if you've asked him into your heart. Jesus doesn't care if you've asked him into your heart multiple times. Jesus doesn't care if the world looks at you and says, she's a really good person. She's really got her life together. She's got great character. Tonight, I want to suggest that there is one thing that Jesus cares about. How have you responded to his call to come and follow? So we're going to talk about three foundations for following Jesus tonight. But before we get there, I want to give you two preconditions 
that need to be in place. All right, so there's five. Five total. Three foundations for following Jesus, but two preconditions. And I want to start with the two preconditions because following Jesus involves us responding to him. Following Jesus involves action. It involves effort. It's an ongoing process. But you won't make that response. You won't take that action. You won't make that effort if you don't have the right mindset and the right heart set to begin with. So what are the two preconditions? Well, they're actually both paradigm shifts, changing the way you think about life and what it's all about. And the first one is this. God is the center and the source of life. God is the center of life, and He is the source of life. Now, for a lot of, a lot of us here tonight, when we would hear that, we would say, I agree with that. that. That makes sense to me, that God would be both at the center of life and that He would be the source of life. So we might nod in agreement if we hear that statement. God is the center and the source of life. But that's not the point. I'm not saying that as some abstract theological idea that we can all agree with. I'm saying that this has to become the truth that you and I order our lives around. That God is the center of our lives. and He is the source of our life. So, I want you to think of the galaxy as a picture of our lives. All right, and it's, it's natural for us to see ourselves as, as the center. It makes sense because all of us start off in life and we become self-aware. I don't know about you, but I really can't remember anything below, I really can't remember anything below four years of age. Uh, I'm not sure what happened, but, uh, but most of us, there's a moment where we begin to become self-aware and then we understand the world that's immediately around us. And then life really becomes about exploring the world, starting from where we're at and trying to make sense of what is the world, what is it all about. And so it's very natural. Our natural paradigm is actually to see ourselves at the center of our own lives. That's just kind of the way that we go about learning, learning life. Just as it was very natural up until a few hundred years ago for people as a whole to think of the earth as the center of, of our cosmos. I mean, of course the earth is the center of the universe because that's where we live and that's what we know and that's what makes sense to us. And so all of these stars and other planets and the sun itself, they're revolving around us. They're revolving around the earth. And it's almost as if we need our own enlightenment moment. We need that moment where we realize that, that no, we're not the center. And this thing simply won't work. The system wasn't designed to work with the earth at the center. If we try to make the sun orbit the earth, we're going to be in big trouble. It's not the way that the system was designed. The earth was designed to orbit around the sun, 
And you were, you and I were designed to go through life revolving around God and having Him at the very center of our lives. So in Genesis chapter 1, very famous words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Most of us have heard verse 1. It's very familiar to us. But does anyone here know verse 2? Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. I know, I know some people do. So go ahead and quote it for us if you can remember Genesis 1, 2. I'll, I'll get it started. The earth was formless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love this verse. The earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the waters. And the Spirit of God was moving over the waters. And there's so much poetry in, in this, this idea that in the beginning you've got the earth, but the earth is formless and it's empty, it's void, and it's full of darkness. But God is there and God is bringing order from the chaos. Planets were meant to orbit. Actually, I learned this recently. Does anyone know where the word planet comes from? Yes, David. It is Greek. Wanderer. That's right. Because, <clears throat> because the Greeks, as they observed their, their known world, they began to notice that most of the objects in the night sky were rotating in a very, predict, uh, very predictable way. But there were a few celestial bodies, a few uh, lights in the night sky that didn't follow that track. Instead, they moved in a straight line across the horizon. And so they became known as planets or wanderers, the travelers that were moving across the night sky. Of course, really those planets were orbiting. Now we know that they were on this great elliptical circuit. And planets were meant to orbit. Planets must orbit. Planets will orbit. That's just the way that they're going to, to function. And you and I are planets. We are not the sun. Uh, you will orbit. You must orbit. The only question is, what will you orbit around? Will you orbit around God, who truly is the center of all things and the source of life? If not, most of us will orbit around one of four other things. So we'll orbit around achievement. And we'll think, if I can just be better than the other 90%, or maybe if I can be in the top 5%, what if I could be in the top 1%? That would bring meaning to my life. That would bring purpose. I would have a sense of fulfillment. And so we pursue achievement. And competition is something that's very important to us. And we start orbiting around achievement. Or maybe approval. Well, if we can just gain enough recognition and popularity and fame, if we can just get enough likes on our social media post and enough people are positive towards us, then that's going to bring some sense of fulfillment or meaning or purpose. That's where I'll really experience the joy of life. And so we'll begin to orbit around seeking other people's approval, trying to find meaning and fulfillment in life from that source. Or pleasure. And we'll think, if I can just have an exciting life, if I can just travel and see places that most of my friends haven't seen, or that I just that I want to see, or if I can go to that, uh, that concert 
if I can have these, these meaningful experiences that bring pleasure, then that's what's really going to bring purpose to my life. And we'll begin to orbit around seeking pleasure. Or maybe the fourth one, possessions. If I just have enough wealth, if I can buy the right house, if I can decorate it the way that I want to, if I can be free from want, if I can just have enough stuff, then life is going to be meaningful for me. And I'll, I'll experience abundant life if I can have enough possessions. We're planets, and you're going to orbit around something. You can't help it. It's, it's what you were designed to do. The thing that I, I, I draw encouragement from is that this is the way God designed us. He designed us with a desire for abundant life. You know, Jesus said, I have come that they might have life, that they might have it abundantly. And so Jesus wasn't offering something that we didn't already innately want, right? He was coming to meet something that we already deeply need and long for, to, to have true life, to have a fulfilling life, to have purpose and meaning. That's what we were designed to do. Jesus came to make it possible. So the desire for abundant life, the pursuit of these things, I'm not looking down on that. I understand it. It's, it's very natural for us, and it's what, it's what you're destined to do as long as you're trying to make the world revolve around you, which itself is very natural. It's, it's, what, it's what we learn as we're growing up, is trying to make life work. But it won't work. It won't work if we're trying to make it revolve around us. So that's the problem. Most of us are coming at it from a self-centered perspective, because that's what we know. And I mean this for Christians. I don't mean this for those people out there on the other side of the door. I mean it for those of us in here, that many of us are trying to find purpose and fulfillment. We're trying to create a meaningful life, and we want to honor God by including Him in it. But it won't work. The sun will not orbit around the earth. Instead, you live with God at the center of your life. And that's what enables you to find meaning and purpose. You begin orbiting God. And you'll find that meaning and purpose that all of us want. That's what begins to bring order from the chaos. When the Spirit of God begins hovering over your life, which is formless and void and full of darkness, that's God's work. He wants to bring order from the chaos of your life. Abundant life is possible. That's paradigm shift number one. Too many of us are living as if we are at the center of our own personal universe. And it's up to us to, to find a life that is meaningful and fulfilling. But God is the center. God is the source of life. So you're never going to find adequate. You'll have meaningful experiences, but you'll never find adequate meaning and purpose until you discover the force at the center of the universe and begin to orbit around Him. So that's paradigm shift number one, precondition number one. God is the center and the source of life. Precondition number two is that your choices and your effort matter. The way you live matters. Now, let's be real. It's just us here tonight. Most of us can talk a pretty good game 
But if our devotion to Jesus was assessed by the daily choices that we make or the amount of daily effort that we put into growing in our lives with God, maturing and living for Him, what would the results say about our sincerity? It's not that we don't know the right answers. I'm asking if they actually assess the choices that you and I are making day in and day out, the effort that we're putting into our walk with Jesus, what would the results say about our sincerity? God brings order from chaos. It's His role to create a stable universe and to bring life. He is at the center. But He's placed you and I on the earth. And He's told us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over it. Psalm 115.16 says that the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth He has given to the children of men. The heavens are the Lord's, but the earth He has given to the children of men. And the way you live matters. In our modern approach to Christianity, I believe that we've lost this mindset. That we've lost this, this paradigm. We've decided that as long as you can say the right things and show up at the right times and feel the right feelings, and as long as your heart is in the right place, then it's all going to come out okay in the end because God is going to take care of it. The heavens are the Lord's, but the earth He has entrusted to man. God will send the rain, but He's not going to plant your crops. And your choices matter, your effort matters. So these two paradigm shifts, that God is at the center and that the way you live, the choices you make matter are preconditions because without them, you simply won't seek God, even if you believe in Him. Without these two preconditions, you won't seek God, even if you acknowledge that He's out there. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists, that He really is the center. And he must also believe that he rewards those who diligently seek him. That your choices and your effort matter. If you have those two beliefs, then you have faith. If you have faith, you will come to God. You'll please God. So I would say that the question posed by, by these two paradigms is this. Are you ready to begin taking God seriously? And the good news for us is that when we're ready to start taking God serious, He's already got things lined up for us. I mean, that's, I truly believe that that is 99% of the battle. If you will begin taking God serious, then He'll show you how to follow Jesus. He'll show you how to live the kind of life that He's calling you to. So with that, let's look at these three foundations that will help us follow Jesus. If you have your Bible or you have your phone, turn to Acts 22. We're going to be looking at the story of Paul from Acts 22. So while you're turning there, let me just set the stage for you. By Acts 22, 
Paul has been a follower of Jesus for many years. In fact, he's traveled all over the, the Roman world, telling people about Jesus, making disciples, and starting churches. At this point, he's in the city of Jerusalem. He's back in the city of Jerusalem, and he's there during one of the three annual feasts. As I was researching this, it appears that he was there during the Feast of Booths. But for those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, three times a year, all Jewish men were required to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate a religious festival, a religious feast. And so during those times, which could last anywhere from seven days to 14 days, maybe even longer, people would get there early to purify themselves so that they were ready for the feast. The city of Jerusalem would explode in population. You had all of these people from all over the world coming to Jerusalem. So Paul is there. And the, the people who are coming there are mostly Jews who are there for the festival. And Paul himself is a Jew. But Paul is also someone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who was promised to come from God and save his people. And this actually put him in the minority. Even though he was a Jew among Jews, he was a Jew who believed in Jesus, and he had many enemies. So he's there at the feast. The city is packed, and he gets sideways with some of the people that did not think highly of him. They make false accusations against him, and a riot begins to break out among this crowded city, and it, it ends with Paul being taken into custody by the Roman soldiers. So they, actually, they have to physically pull him away from the crowd who are trying to kill Paul um, because they view him as someone who has desecrated the temple. And it's crazy. It's madness. And, and the soldiers, the, the people, the crowd, they're trying to get through the soldiers to get to Paul so that they can do him harm. And the soldier, they're actually taking Paul into custody, but they're also protecting him from this mob and they drag him towards their barracks, which is the Roman Praetorium. It's right next to the temple. And they're, they're bringing him up the stairs to, to bring him into the fortress. And he asks them, let me speak to the crowd. Let me make a defense because I've been falsely accused. And so they actually give him permission. And that's what we're going to read here in Acts 22 is Paul explaining himself. But it's really Paul telling the story of how he came to see Jesus as the true Messiah and how he became a follower. So let's read it together. Acts 22, verses 3 through 16. Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated with strictness under Gamaliel, according to the law of our ancestors. And I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I, I persecuted this way, which is the, to be a follower of Jesus. They, they would call it the way. So Paul says, I persecuted those who were following Jesus, even to the point of death, tying up both men and women and putting them in prison. As both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. From them, I also received letters to the brothers in Damascus, and I was on my way to make arrest there and bring the prisoners back to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and almost at the city, about noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. Then I fell to the ground 
and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, Who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So I asked, What should I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go to Damascus. There you you will be told about everything that you have been designated to do. And since I could not see because of the brilliance of that light, I came to Damascus led by the hand of those who were with me. Then a man named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and stood beside me and said to me, Brother Saul, regain your sight. At that very moment I looked up and I saw him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has already chosen you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a command from his mouth, because you will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and have your sins washed away, calling on his name. All right, now, the first thing that I want to point out is that Paul did have these two preconditions that we were talking about, okay? He was living life with God at the center, and he very much believed that his choices matter. I mean, he was going for it. The uh, verses 3 through 5, let's read those. This is how Paul described it. He says, I'm a Jew. I was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but I was brought up in this city, Jerusalem. I was educated with strictness. Now, educated there is not just what we would think about it. This this was not a secular education. This was educated to know God's Word, the Old Testament Scriptures, and to observe it, to actually live his life based on it. I was educated with strictness under Gamaliel. According to the law of our ancestors, I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way, even to the point of death. People died because Paul was trying to snuff out the followers of Jesus. I tied up both men and women and put them in prison. And he says, the high priests and the whole council of elders can testify that this is true. So Paul had these two preconditions, and he also had heard about Jesus, very much so. He, he had heard of Jesus from Nazareth. He thought he knew who Jesus was, and he was living based on that flawed understanding. So that brings us to foundation number one, and it comes from Paul's question in verse 8. Who are you, Lord? So Paul has been living life as zealously as he possibly knows how as a Jewish man who views Jesus as a false Messiah, right? Foundation number one, we have to recognize Jesus for who he is and then reorient our lives around him. So Paul thought Jesus was dead. He had heard of Jesus, but his understanding was, yes, Jesus is the one who was crucified. Paul thought that Jesus was dead. 
He also thought that Jesus was a fraud, a false messiah. And to Paul's credit, he lived based on that understanding. If Jesus was those two things, then Paul was taking the right course of action to try to keep other Jews from being led astray by this false Messiah. But on the road to Damascus, Paul discovered that Jesus was very much alive. And far from being a fraud, he discovered that Jesus was the true Messiah and Lord of all creation. And that is a game changer, right? And again, to his credit, this revelation, the answer to this question, who are you, Lord, completely reoriented Paul's life, as it has to do for us. Because for us in this society at this time, almost everyone has heard of Jesus. It would be really hard to find someone who has not heard of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that we have an accurate picture of who he is or that our lives have been reoriented around who he is. Too many of us are saying the right things about Jesus, but our lives show that we haven't really reoriented so that we're living towards him based on what we say we believe about him. Jesus is alive today, and he wants you to come and listen to him, but you're busy. It's hard to make time to listen to Jesus, right? But Jesus is Lord of all creation. He says, come and follow me. Will you reorient? Will you make space in your life to actually live out what you say you believe about Jesus? Now, this, this was my own life. I would say up until the time I was 20 years old. I grew up in the Bible Belt. I heard the stories about Jesus. I had some great examples, both in my family and in extended friends, men and women of character who had faith and believed in God. Uh, and if you had asked me at the age of 17, are you a Christian? I would have said, yes. If you had asked me, will you go to heaven when you die? I would have said, I'm pretty sure. If you had asked me, are you a disciple of Jesus? I'm certain that I would have said no. Because instinctively, I knew that a disciple was someone who took their faith serious, and I did not. Uh, when I graduated high school, I moved out of state to go to school. <coughs> And for the next three years, I didn't go to church, I didn't pray, I didn't read my Bible, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about God. There wasn't much different from the way I lived and my friends who did not claim to be Christians. And then in my third year of school, my final year of school, it was a three-year program, in my last year of school, my life turned into a country music song where... Um, I, I lost my job and I, I was just throwing a friend a hundred bucks to couch surf because I wasn't making enough at that job to afford my own place. The school I went to, you know, it wasn't a traditional four year school. So you lived off, off campus. They didn't have any dorms. So you were responsible to find your housing. I couldn't afford it. So I was just giving this, this buddy a hundred bucks to crash on his couch. And, um, he ended up skipping town. Didn't tell me. Uh, one day he was just gone. I wasn't on the lease. I wasn't technically supposed to be there. It was mid-January, 1993, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in what I've since learned was a horrible blizzard of a year. Uh, it snowed all the time. And, uh, <clears throat> and then my car, my car died. 
Um, I remember they paid me $67 to tow it away to the salvage yard. Uh, so I'm sitting there in mid-January with no job. Basically, I'm going to be homeless in two weeks and uh, no vehicle. And instinctively, I don't know. I just knew, okay, God's trying to get my attention. Um, and so I prayed and I, I told God, I know that I've, I've always said that you're out there, but I, I also know I haven't really paid much attention to you. If you'll help get me through this, then uh, I'll get serious about trying to figure out who you are and what you want from me. And long story short, God came through. Um, I got a new job, and at that job, I met a friend named Kevin. I was so impressed by his life because I knew that he was uh, a spiritual person because he was reading these comic books with uh, seven-headed dragons. And so I thought he's either in the Dungeons and Dragons or he's religious. And so I talked to him about it. Sure enough, he was religious. He was my age, but I had never met anyone my age who was genuine about what they believed. The challenge was, you know, Kevin was a Jehovah's Witness. So interesting that you had some Mormons and I had a Jehovah's Witness that really God used that sincerity in Kevin's life to, to prompt me that that's who I want to be. I want to be sincere. If I believe in God, I want to actually live as if I believed in God. Very quickly, I saw that there were some different understandings from Kevin's church, what they taught about Jesus. So they believed that Jesus was not the same as God. So they did not believe in the Trinity. Um, and this created a, like a real crisis for me because on the one hand, I thought, well, I've always heard that it's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um, so I'm not sure that what Kevin believes is right, but I, I so admired his life that I thought, well, if I've got the right information, but I'm living like a dirtbag, and Kevin's got the wrong information, but he's such a genuine person, I don't know, my mind couldn't get around it. Like It, it really caused, uh, it drove me to the Bible. And I began to ask this question. I didn't even know, but Acts 22.8, who are you, Lord? My first Bible study was, who is Jesus? What does the Bible actually say about Jesus? What did Jesus say about himself? And I told Jesus, if you'll show me who you are, I'll follow you. One of the verses he used was out of John 5.22 and 23, which says, the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. And so I thought, well, I need to give Jesus the same type of honor that I would give the Father. Foundation one is, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to recognize who He truly is, and you have to reorient your life based around that. One without the other doesn't work. So that brings us to foundation two. We need to recognize who Jesus says we are and embrace that as our true identity. So look with me at verses 14 and 15 from Acts 22. Ananias said to Paul, The God of our ancestors has already chosen you to know His will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a command from His mouth, because you will be His witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. So we already saw early in this chapter that Paul's identity had been based on his ethnicity, his heritage, and his upbringing. 
And Paul had embraced that identity to the full. But after meeting Jesus just outside of Damascus, he received a whole new identity. He was someone who had been chosen by God to become a student of Jesus. Look at it it again in verse 14. God has chosen you to know, chosen you to know His will, to see the righteous one, to see Jesus, and to hear a command from His mouth. He was chosen by God to be a student of Jesus. He was also chosen by God to be a messenger, a witness for Jesus. You will be a witness, a witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And again, to Paul's credit, for the rest of his life, he embraced this identity. He was one who belonged to Jesus. He was one who learned from Jesus. He was one who lived for Jesus and spread his message. So the next time you're reading through some of these letters of Paul in the New Testament, notice how he introduces himself. He always introduces himself at the beginning of each letter. And it's usually along these lines. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle of Jesus the Messiah. So how do you think of yourself? And what do you base your identity off of? If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to recognize who He says you are and then embrace that as your true identity. And that brings us to our third foundation. We need to recognize the mission of Jesus and the the part He wants us to play in it and then get involved. So from the beginning, Paul understood that he couldn't just ask the question, Who are you, Lord? Back in verse 8. He asked a second question. Do you guys remember what it was in verse 10? What should I do? What do I need to do? Who are you, Lord? What do I need to do? What should I do? Some of you guys have, have heard me say this, that Jesus isn't looking for fans. He's looking for followers. He doesn't just want people who can answer that first question and get excited about it. He wants people that will ask that second question as well. What should I do? Again, going back to my story, as I read those those New Testament chapters, the Gospels about Jesus, one set of verses that really stood out to me was from Matthew 10. Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. It was probably my first memory verse, not because I tried, but because I couldn't forget what Jesus said. He said, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But anyone who denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And I kept waiting for the next verse for this third category of people. People who maybe weren't confessing Jesus, but also weren't denying Him. You know, they believed in Him and they were trying to be good people. It was me. I was that third category. And there was no third category. There was the people who confessed Jesus before men, who openly lived for Jesus in front of others, who represented Him. And Jesus said, when I see people doing that, I'm going to go to bat for them. I'm going to confess them before my Father in heaven. If you'll live before me on earth, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men on earth, I will also deny... Man, Jesus says some really difficult things, and I was trying to find myself there. 
I definitely was not someone who was confessing him before men. And even though I didn't think of myself as someone who was denying him, I had to admit that anyone who looked at my life, it was a denial. That there was nothing about my life that represented Jesus. And so I knew that Jesus wanted me to belong to him, but also to live for him in front of others. That that was the answer to this question, what should I do? If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to recognize he has a mission that he wants you to be a part of. And then you have to choose to go for it and get involved. So those are the three foundations that will help you follow Jesus. Recognize who he is and then reorient your life around it. Recognize who he says you are and then embrace that as your identity. And then recognize that he has a mission he wants you to be a part of and get involved. There's never been a better time to follow Jesus. I truly believe that. Christianity's been around for 2,000 years. There has never been a better time to follow Jesus than right now. We have more freedom, more opportunity to live for Him today than any generation that I can think of in the past. So, What's holding us back? Teacher, what good thing must I do? What's holding you back? What is the one thing you lack? Let's learn from the story of the wealthy young man. Pay whatever price. Take whatever action needed. I promise you it's worth it. Thanks for listening to the podcast. You can help us reach more people by going to iTunes, subscribing, and leaving a review. And if you like what we're doing here, tell a friend about us. In an age of social media, word of mouth is still the most powerful way to spread the message.